I will tell you this. I think that is one of the benefits of this pandemic due to COVID-19. We've all been hunkering down as this storm washes over us. And one of the effects is going to be that everyone who is only nominally committed is going to be washed away. And that will be good for the church. It will clarify commitments. It will streamline things and clear the deck, as it were, for effective action on the other side. But for you, as a listener, this truth ought to serve as a warning. The winds are starting to blow, so now is the time to anchor down. Now is the time to be all in. Set your hope fully on the grace that lies ahead, meaning anchor into the coming kingdom, not the present kingdom, not the passing kingdom. Be all in on Team Jesus. That's the idea here. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Now is the time to anchor down. Now is the time to be all in on Team Jesus. I love that, and I think that is just one of the many important and timely lessons for us from this wonderful epistle written by the Apostle Peter. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to 1 Peter chapter 1. We believe that Peter wrote this letter in A.D. 63. That's a pretty specific estimate, but there seems to be some fairly solid historical reasons for that level of confidence. Peter makes no mention of the persecution that he and others suffered under Nero, so it seems likely that the letter was written before that takes place. He also makes no mention here of the Apostle Paul being in Rome with him when he wrote, which suggests that Paul had already been released from his first imprisonment in Rome. So if he wrote after that and before the persecution under Nero, that suggests that he wrote this letter in or around AD 63. The first verse of the letter says that it was written to believers dispersed throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Pontus and Bithynia were adjacent territories that were at this time gathered together into a single province. The other areas mentioned were all in the same area, an area roughly, though not perfectly, equivalent to modern-day Turkey, particularly those northern areas south of the Black Sea. As to how churches came to be planted in this region, we aren't entirely sure. It seems likely that they were initially established by Jews from that region who were present in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2 says that there were devout Jews from all over the Roman Empire in Jerusalem for the festival, and they were witnesses to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church. And they heard the disciples speaking in tongues. Luke records their reaction in Acts 2, 7-12. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? So there were people there on that day from this region, from Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, 
they heard Peter get up to speak. Presumably, they were among the 3,000 people who were converted and baptized as a result, and they must have taken the message back with them to their home province. These people appear to have had a very close connection to the Apostle Peter, which is presumably why he wrote to them from Rome to encourage them in a time of difficulty. They needed the encouragement because these Christians were among the very first believers to experience formal persecution at the hands of the Romans. Up until this point, the Christians had generally only had difficulties with the Jews. You will recall that the Apostle Paul had been a fierce persecutor of the Christians, not on behalf of the Romans, but on behalf of the Jewish Sanhedrin. The Romans, by and large, couldn't tell a Jew from a Christian in the first generation, but as more and more Gentiles joined the church, that situation obviously began to change. And so in places like Pontus and Bithynia, Christians began to face the malice of the beast, as it were. They began to attract the animosity of Rome. And so Peter wrote to stabilize them in the face of this new reality. One of the things that he did was try to help them right-size the difficulties they were facing. They were not yet being killed for their faith. They were not yet being crucified or stoned or tortured. Things were bad, but they weren't that bad. Thomas Schreiner says here, The only specific suffering noted is discrimination and mistreatment and verbal abuse from former colleagues and friends. Close quote. So, this is mild persecution. This is social disfavor. This is financial marginalization. This is legal harassment. In other words, this is pretty close to where we are all of a sudden in much of the formerly Christian West. So Peter wrote to stabilize them. There's no need to hide in the barn at the first sight of rain, he says. There's no hurricane out there just yet. You can press through this there's still a lot of operational space for the church. And Peter, of course, doesn't want them to lose their courage, and he doesn't want them to lose their focus. So he writes to them in order to remind them of how Christians ought to respond in these sorts of situations. I love what Edmund Clowney says here. He says, whether their neighbors attack or respect them, they can bear witness to the grace of God by their Christian lifestyle. Quietly and humbly, they can live holy lives, not seeking to claim their own rights, but honoring others. Such humble living is in no way servile or demeaning, for Christians know themselves to be the royal people of God's own possession, the chosen heirs of the new creation. They need not avenge themselves, nor need they claim for themselves what is their due. Their trust is in the judgment of God, closed quote. So look to Jesus, play the long game, trust in what you know, and seize every opportunity that you have. That's the basic message here. And it is as true today as it was in A.D. 63. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. 
Well, that's a fantastic introduction. It's a very loaded introduction. You could preach probably a couple of sermons on those two verses alone. The New Testament epistles in general tend to follow the convention of signaling their intentions for the body of the letter in the things they say and emphasize in the introduction. And that appears to be the case here. By calling these folks elect exiles, Peter is signaling his intention to speak to them about the nature of their standing in this world. We are not citizens of Pontus Bithynia, he says. We are not Romans. We are, we are not Jews. We are citizens now of a coming country. Our primary allegiance is to another kingdom. We are like the Old Testament Jews living in exile in Babylon. That's the imagery that he's calling upon here. And that in itself is interesting. Most scholars assume, based on some of the things that Peter says in this letter, that this church was by this point in its history majority Gentile. It had a Jewish base. We talked about that already. But as was often the case, when Jewish Christians came to a knowledge of the grace of God through Christ, the most eager recipients of their message tended to be the Gentile God-fearers who lived and operated at the margins of the synagogue. With the barrier of the ceremonial and ritual law removed, these folks came into the new covenant community like a flood. So most churches at this time, outside of Jerusalem and Judea, had a Jewish foundation and then a layer or two or three of Gentile converts. And yet here, Peter applies to all of them this Old Testament imagery, Jew or Gentile. If we are in Christ, then this world is not our home. Therefore, we don't expect the people of this world to, to treat us as if we belonged. We, we don't belong, and real Christians need to understand that. And, and just like how the wolves will bark at the domesticated dog, so too now your former friends and neighbors will bark and bite at you. So get used to that, Peter says. You're exiles and strangers now as you wait for the coming of the king. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. A number of New Testament letters begin with a blessing, and so it is here. Peter wants to encourage them, but he also wants to ground them. And you can really see that in the layout of this first chapter. In verses 3 to 12, Peter is reminding them of the solid gospel truths that they've believed. And then from that point on, he's going to be encouraging them to live in light of those gospel truths in which they have believed. And you can see that transition very clearly. That's the first word in verse 13. Therefore, that's, that's the hinge. In light of what I've just told you, live this way. So verses 3 to 12 represent gospel foundations. He's reminding them of the faith in which they have believed. He says, first, you were saved by the will of God. He calls them the elect. He says they were saved by his mercy. God caused you to be born again. So your faith started with God, and your faith has been guaranteed by God. He says that in verse 5. God's power is guarding you. He is invested in you. Of course, that's very encouraging to people 
we're starting to feel the wrath and displeasure of Rome. Don't worry about the beast. Don't worry about the state. Yes, the government may be coming for you, but God has your back. God has your treasure all tucked away up in heaven where Caesar cannot reach. And God is watching you and giving you the strength that you need to survive and thrive no matter what you're facing down here on earth. That's very encouraging. Peter says as much in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is an incredibly helpful paragraph. Look again at verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Peter is teaching them the characteristic Christian attitude with respect to our experiences in this world. We rejoice in the truths of our salvation. We are rejoicing in the fact that God loves us. He saved us. He showed us mercy. He has a future for us and an inheritance that will never tarnish or fade. Hallelujah. We are rejoicing in that. And yet we are also legitimately grieved by the things that we do experience down here on earth. That's the attitude. Call it qualified rejoicing or honest joy. Call it whatever you want. The idea is that we are joyful without denying the fact that life down here is actually pretty hard. Now, obviously, you can get this wrong in two ways. You can be so obsessed with the difficulties down here on earth that you lose your joy, or you can be so focused on the future joys up in heaven that you lose touch with the reality of human life. Neither of those extremes is good. A proper Christian attitude has one hand on each of those realities, and that is what allows us to persevere and to endure. This is what produces resolve. This is the right, this is the helpful, this is the prescribed Christian attitude in the time between. Now look at verse 7. Peter says that that this state of affairs, these, these various sufferings, have actually been ordained by God so as to test and purify your faith. God does not want you to have an untried faith. Have you ever thought about that? God doesn't want you to be rich, happy, and unruffled. He wants to refine you. He wants to exercise you. He wants to display your growth, your obedience, and your faithfulness under fire. That's what he's after. And that's what Peter wants these dear people to understand. So he tells them to keep their eyes on Jesus. That's what he's saying in verses 8 to 9. If you look at Jesus, that will steady you. That will increase your joy. And that should Stiffen your resolve. Look at Jesus. See him up there at the right hand of the throne of God. See the future and see the nail-scarred hands as well. See the pain. See the process. See the humiliation followed by the glory. That's the path. Now walk ye in it. Verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours 
searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So hear that. Peter says that the Old Testament prophets didn't understand all of what they were saying about the grace of God and Jesus Christ. They said some stuff that is actually more helpful to you than it was to them or to their generation because they didn't fully understand how it would ultimately be realized. But you do understand because you live on the other side of the cross in the empty tomb. That's a reminder to us that the whole Bible ultimately points to Jesus. The Old Testament prophets are pointing forward and the New Testament apostles are pointing backwards. But everybody, Old Testament and New, is pointing at Jesus. So if you're reading the Bible and you are maximally excited about something other than the person and work of Jesus, you are reading it wrong. The Bible's about Jesus. It is about how he came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves and how he paid for our sins in his body on the cross. Thanks be to God. Verse 13, and now see that transition from solid gospel truths to personal application of behavior. We talked about that. Verse 13 is the hinge. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. There are four imperatives, four distinct commands that Peter gives in the last part of this chapter that flow out naturally from that solid gospel foundation that he laid in the first 12 verses. Because God saved you, because he chose you and was merciful to you, and because he is helping you and protecting you and preparing you for an eternity of worship and service, therefore, here's how you need to conduct yourself in the trials and tribulation that lie before you. He, he says four things. The first thing he says you've got to do is found in verse 13. You've got to set your hope fully on the grace that lies ahead. 
So anchor in, lock it down. Peter is saying that wavering faith is not going to survive in a time of storm and trial. So now is the time to get serious. I will tell you this. I think that is one of the benefits of this pandemic due to COVID-19. We've all been hunkering down as this storm washes over us. And one of the effects is going to be that everyone who is only nominally committed is going to be washed away. And that will be good for the church. It will clarify commitments. It will streamline things and clear the deck, as it were, for effective action on the other side. But for you, as a listener, this truth ought to serve as a warning. The winds are starting to blow, so now is the time to anchor down. Now is the time to be all in. Set your hope fully on the grace that lies ahead, meaning anchor into the coming kingdom, not the present kingdom, not the passing kingdom. Be all in on team Jesus. That's the idea here. Second command is found in verse 15. He says, be holy in all your conduct. That word translated as be could also be translated as become. Peter is telling them to become like the one in whom they have believed. He is commanding them to grow in the direction of Jesus Christ. This is what theologians refer to as sanctification. Now, like a good teacher here, Peter provides some very helpful content that helps us understand how it is that we should execute this command. In verse 14, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That's an instrumental participle, meaning that Peter is telling them how to grow in holiness. You do that, first of all, by looking away from the world and from the desires and appetites commended by the world. Listen, not to be too simplistic, but a major reason why so many Christians are so weak and so worldly is that they spend way too much time looking at and listening to the world unplug. Turn your head. Look at something else. Listen to something else. If you're watching Netflix and playing Instagram 24 hours a day, you're not making a clean break. You're not looking away. A lot of Christian growth and sanctification is just about turning your neck away from the world and toward Christ. The third command that Peter gives to these folks is found in verse 17. He says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Conduct yourselves with fear is the actual command here. But the meaning is found in the setup. If you call on him as father who judges, that's the sort of fear we're talking about here. It is the respect that a child has for a father who has standards and who enforces those standards within the household. That's who God is. And so that's how you need to be from now on. You need to be a father-honoring son or daughter in this holy household. Remember, according to verse 2, you were saved for obedience to Jesus. So father expects you to follow the example of your older brother. And as a saved person, you need to do that. You are part of something now. And you need to act like it. The fourth and final command that Peter gives here is found in verse 22. He says, you folks need to love one another earnestly, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly. Thomas Schreiner, again, is helpful here. He says, the goal or purpose of their conversion is a genuine love 
for fellow believers, closed quote. Again, you are part of something now, and you need to lean into that. That's for God's glory, but it is also for your good. A storm is coming, Peter says, and when it comes, you're going to need each other. That's the plan. That's how we're going to prepare to survive and thrive during the storm we all see approaching. We're going to lock into Christ. We're going to clean up our conduct. We're going to follow the Father's instructions, and we're going to love one another earnestly. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, I love that closing counsel. In times of challenge and affliction, love one another earnestly. We are going to need each other on the other side of this unprecedented trial, and yet, to my eye at least, at times, it kind of looks like Christians have been turning on each other over the course of this pandemic. Would you agree with that? I think in general, yes. I mean, certainly it seems that way on social media, and I think it has been that way to an extent at ground level, and we probably shouldn't be too surprised by that. Historically speaking, war tends to bring people together, and a pandemic tends to drive people apart. A pandemic is a hidden threat. It's a mysterious threat, and it tends to make us anxious and suspicious of one another. But God is on the move, and God is using this pandemic, and I really do believe that we're going to see a fair bit of repenting and restoring and renewing on the other side. And I think that will be good for the Church of Jesus Christ over the long haul. Amen. Well, I am praying that you write about that one. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.